Would you pray with me, please? Our precious living God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you, uh, my Father, for the revolution that your word causes in our hearts and minds. We thank you, my Father in heaven, that you have spoken and you have acted in such a way, my Father, that we would have the model of how you want us to act. We praise you and honor you, Lord, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world. We thank you, Lord. Uh, please guide now our teaching and guide our time together and guide our understanding and our knowledge of your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Good morning, everyone. I invite you to be prepared to take notes. Um, I think there may be things that that you want to uh, to review later. There are pencils in the front of your pews. There are Bibles in your pews if you didn't bring yours, but you can also use the insert that that is in your bulletins. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the service, today is not only the first Sunday after Epiphany, uh, the coming of the wise men, today also we celebrate um, the baptism of Jesus. Today's baptism Sunday. And uh, as you can tell, even by the words I just spoke with you, or to you right now, Today we're going to take another one of those long chronological leaps. Those long chronological leaps. Last week I, uh, I told you that we were going to take a jump uh, from the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and the coming of the wise men. Uh, we were going to take a jump of about 12 years because I taught you about Jesus um, coming to the temple, perhaps to prepare for his bar mitzvah, and uh, how he got lost, and then he was found, and he was never lost in the first place, because he always knew where he would be, in his father's house and in his father's business. But we took a leap from Bethlehem and a manger and, and the house where the wise men uh, found uh, the child all the way to the temple uh, and to his age of about 12. Well, today we take an even bigger leap. We take a leap from about age 12 to about age 30, to about age 30, uh, when it's the time more or less that Jesus uh, begins uh, his ministry and comes to, to the Jordan. Um, kind of a 30-year chronological leap from birth to beginning of ministry. One of the things that, that I want you to, to observe um, is how Matthew begins his account of the baptism of Jesus. 
Uh, by the way, you need to know that all four of the Gospels tell us about Jesus' baptism. All four of them. Matthew does. Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus. Luke has the baptism of Jesus. And John also has the baptism of Jesus. All of them give us the testimony of what happened in the River Jordan during the ministry of John the Baptist and when Jesus was baptized. All four Gospels. But I love the way, and I want to show you the way in which Matthew begins to tell us. And the reason that I want to, to do that is I want you to see that there is purpose in Jesus. There is purpose in what he does. And I want you to pay attention to the propositions in this first liner of the baptism of Jesus. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, to be baptized by him. I mean, there's a whole lot of purposes here. I mean, Jesus, it, it, it almost takes us step by step. Jesus left Galilee. He came to the Jordan. He came with a purpose. He knew why he was coming. He wasn't just coming for a feast. He wasn't just coming for a visit. He came because he wanted to be baptized under the ministry and the leadership of what John had been appointed to do. Jesus came with a purpose. He came with a purpose. He came to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And I just love how he, uh, Matthew gives us such purpose in, in the thing, in how he begins to tell the story. Now, the first thing we encounter is we encounter that John the Baptist opposes Jesus when Jesus comes and says, I want to be baptized. He, he opposes him. He, he basically says, wait, 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 wait. Let's not put the cart before the horse here. Okay? Let's not turn this on its head. Okay? What are you doing coming to me for me to baptize you? It should be I who gets baptized by you. What are you doing here, Jesus? What are you doing trying to change what I'm supposed to do? John the Baptist acknowledges that Jesus is the greater and he's the lesser. And the first thing John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus coming to him is he says, no. And, and, it, and it tells us, it tells us here in the passage, John would have prevented him. He would have prevented him. And, the, and so the, the first question I would ask you is why would John prevent Jesus from being baptized? I don't think the answer is that difficult. Basically, John understood fully and completely that Jesus was the Messiah. He had been appointed. He had been sent. He had gone into the wilderness where he had a very austere type of life. And God had been speaking to him all along and told him exactly what his appointment and his mission was. And so he starts baptizing in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. 
And here comes Jesus upon whom the Holy Spirit is, according to the Gospel of John, and he says, I recognized him. I recognized that the Spirit was in him, and he's coming for me to baptize him. John fully knew who Jesus was, and he fully understood who he was as Messiah, as the anointed one of God. And now you're asking me to baptize you? It should be the reverse. I should be the one that is baptized by you. He knew that Jesus was the greater and that he was the lesser. In fact, this is what he says. He says in Matthew 3:11, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. John, you see, one thing I loved about John, John didn't try to compete with Jesus. John didn't say, hey, I've already got a big established church here in the Jordan. I have all kinds of people coming to me from all over to be baptized. I am the one that God spoke to, and who are you now coming to take over? John fully knew from the beginning that his ministry had a beginning and he had an end, and the end of it was the appearance of the Messiah. His job was to just proclaim that Jesus was coming. His job was to prepare the way of the Lord and to prepare the heart of men and women to prepare them to receive the one who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. I baptize with water, but he that is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John had very clear understanding and limitations of his own ministry, what he was sent to do, and he did it, and he was faithful to what he had to do. He was faithful. He proclaimed the coming of Jesus. He proclaimed the Messiah. He prepared the heart of man, and now Jesus comes into the water, and he knows his ministry is coming to the end, and Jesus wants to be baptized by him. No, the greater one the greater one should baptize the lesser one. And so he immediately begins to block what Jesus wants to do. So the first question I asked you is, is why did uh, John the Baptist prevent Jesus from being baptized? The second question I would want to ask you and want you to consider is why did Jesus insist why did Jesus insist that John the Baptist, Jesus submits himself to the baptism and the ministry of John the Baptist. But why did Jesus insist? What does it mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, let us fulfill all righteousness? John, you need to baptize me in order that we fulfill all righteousness. What is that? Well, Whenever we look at the word righteousness, we need to understand that righteousness implies the idea of being right with God. That is righteousness. In simple terms, righteousness is not us thinking we're better than ourselves or us are perfect or us are good, but rather to be righteous is to be right with God. 
to be right with his word, to be right with his direction, to be right with his command. And so when Jesus indicates and says to John, let us fulfill all righteousness, basically what he's saying, we are to do the things the way God wanted them done. We need to ultimately, you and I, John, both of us, we need to submit to what God has ordained. We need to submit to this baptism to which he sent you to do. We need to fulfill all that is right between God and man. We need to do it God's way. Not our way, but God's way. We need to fulfill God's will for man. You see, baptism, baptism is an act of obedience. It's an act of obedience. You know, we can say all kinds of things about baptism, but baptism is an act of obedience. God sent John to baptize. And Jesus was submitting himself to what God had ordained. Righteousness is an act of obedience, and it's an act of saying, your will be done, Father, not mine. I will do it your way. The way you want things, that's the way I want to do it. Now, there's another reason here why Jesus tells John and insists that he must be baptized. And it's a simple reason, but very profound reason. Jesus is being baptized so that he could fully identify with those he came to save. Jesus did not come just to tell people what to do. Jesus was fully joining on everything that we are asked to do. There is a sense in the baptism of Jesus that he is fully identifying himself with those who needed to walk into the waters of baptism, those that needed to repent of their sins. Jesus had no sin to repent of, but if he fully took our flesh, he fully had to take our needs. If Jesus fully took our humanity, he fully had to take our condition. As he did it on the cross, it begins here at the waters of baptism. In being baptized, he's identifying himself with those that he came to save and to rescue and to redeem. He's fully becoming like us in entering the waters of baptism. He had stepped into our lives, and now he was fully going to immerse himself into our needs. That is, that is part of what Jesus is doing in this water at Jordan. He had nothing to repent of. He was without sin. He had no preparation for a second one that's coming. What he's doing is he's identifying with us and walking in the shoes that we were to walk on. He was identifying himself with our humanity, with our brokenness, with our brokenness between God and, and, and us, 
and he was identifying with our need for repentance and a need of change and a life direction, and he was identifying himself with our need for mercy and, and grace. Let's imagine for a moment, I just want you to imagine for a moment, that Jesus was not baptized. There will be some among us that will refuse baptism because he wasn't baptized. Just like there were people in the Corinthian church that were arguing about, I belong to Cephas, and I belong to Paul, and I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Christ, we tend to align ourselves with who we want. And some would say that then I don't need to be baptized because Jesus was not baptized. Well, his baptism immediately erases that possibility. Being baptized is a must for every believer in Jesus entered the waters of baptism in the same manner. We have no excuse to not be baptized. Baptism is a commandment of God, and Jesus himself made it a commandment and said, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and Spirit. You know, we enter this life through water and Spirit. Do you know that? We enter this life through the symbiotic fluid of our mothers and through the first breath that we take. Okay? We enter the eternal life, the life of the kingdom of God, the life eternal. We enter it through the waters of baptism and the breath of God, the spirit of God, the ruah of God. One birth similar to the other. One leads to, to the grave eventually, New birth, being born from above, leads us into eternity and into heaven. Jesus was baptized as an example and a model and as command for all of us. Whoever ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ must be baptized as Jesus was baptized. And so that answers that question of what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness is to do things the way God wants it done. And baptism was part of that plan of God. And so we find as we keep reading the gospel that eventually John says, okay. You know, he, he says, all right. He, he relented and he says, let me baptize you. And so he baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens are parted. And what comes, it's parted so that the Holy Spirit comes, looking like a dove, and just comes and aligns with, with Jesus. And then you hear the voice, or Jesus heard the voice from heaven this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. By the way, just as a teaching side item, there's only two places in the life of Jesus where he hears those identical words. One is here at his baptism, and the second one is at the transfiguration. Both of them pivotal events in the life of Jesus. One at the very beginning, and one at the very beginning of his journey to the cross. Both times the Father reminds him that he's so pleased with him, and that he is his son. At the baptism, he starts his ministry. 
and at the transfiguration, he ends the earthly ministry, kind of, and begins the journey toward the cross. And so the Father says, you are my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So what is happening is that the Father is confirming Jesus' sonship. For one thing, the Father is declaring the sonship of Jesus. Secondly, he's confirming the ministry of Jesus. Because in confirming the Son, he's confirming the ministry for which he became man. And he is confirming his pleasure with his son's obedience. That's the voice. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. I'm so happy with you, son. You are the delight of my heart. You are the delight of my soul. I so love you, son, and your obedience shows that you love me. He's confirming the voice. But the Holy Spirit comes and aligns upon Jesus, anointing him. One of the things that you need to understand that usually a priest or a prophet couldn't enter into their role until about the age of 30, till about the age of 30 to 33. That's the, the years when someone could become a priest or could become a prophet. And what is happening here at the age of 30, there is an anointing coming upon Jesus and establishing him as the king and establishing him as the prophet of God but also establishing him as the priest of God that would offer himself as the sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and aligns upon Jesus. And, and in John's gospel, John declares, I saw the Spirit laying on him or aligning in him, and I knew he was the one. In John chapter 1 or chapter 2, I think chapter 1, Okay, so what is happening here at this Jordan River is we have the confirmation of who Jesus is and we have the anointing for ministry that the Holy Spirit represents and, and the anointing for the priestly and prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. And, and I think that alone teaches you about the baptism of Jesus. But I want to go a little farther. And I want to start talking a little bit about your and my baptism. Your and my baptism, because I, I really believe I have some things to teach you and to share with you about you and me and our baptism. Uh, we must understand, first of all, that baptism is a sacrament. Baptism is not a sacrament in the sense that it's a liturgical word. You know, we talk about the sacraments of communion or the sacraments and all of that. Baptism is a sacrament because it's a sacred act. That's what the word sacrament ultimately means. It is a sacred act of you and God coming together, of joining one another. You do what you can do and God does what you cannot do. And where, they, where we meet, that becomes a sacred moment, a going into, into the presence of God, of stepping into holy ground so that Moses can be near the burning bush. 
A baptism, our baptism, is a sacred moment. When we come for communion, we sometimes come to take bread and drink wine. We are coming to a sacred, holy moment in which God comes into you and meets you right here and meets you in bread and wine and says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And at baptism, God meets us there, and it's sacred, and it's holy, and it's set apart, and it causes me to say I should never come to the waters of baptism lightly. I should never bring anyone to the waters of baptism lightly. None of us should come to communion lightly. We should be coming trembling that we're coming to get closer to the burning bush. And when you come close to the burning bush, it will burn away your sins. The closer you come to the bush, the closer it will burn away stuff in us that needs to be removed. Baptism is a sacrament. Not liturgically speaking, it is just a sacred moment. And we need to approach it with sacredness and, 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 and with attention. It is sacred. It's a holy act of devotion. Now, let me tell you this. I want you to hear carefully. Baptism is not magical. There's nothing magical about baptism. Baptism is reasonable. It's a thought-out, intentional act that a believer in Jesus Christ needs to do. It is not magical. There's no magic in being baptized. There's no something I'm going to get that is magic. It's going to be magical. It's reasonable. It is thought out. It needs to be understood. You need to know why you're coming. It's purposeful. You need to come to submit to God and to throw yourself into the arms of God, into the waters of baptism with God. There's nothing magical about baptism. It is reasonable, and it is intentional. Baptism is an act of faith. It's an act of faith, and it's an act of obedience. It's an act of faith and it's an act of obedience. Listen to what I'm going to say now. Baptism does not convey faith or obedience. It declares our faith and our obedience. It's not that you come to the waters of baptism and you're baptized and all of a sudden you have faith. Uh-uh. Baptism does not convey faith or obedience. Baptism declares the faith that brings you to the water. Declares your faith in Jesus Christ. De declares that you're obedient to the words of God and to the words of Jesus. Baptism declares. It doesn't convey. Not faith. And not obedience. It declares our faith in Jesus Christ, our submission to Jesus, the fact that we've been saved by him. And because he ordained it, we come to the waters as a declaration to the whole world, a declaration to the whole world. I looked it up in the catechism. 
I looked up what a sacrament is in the, in the catechism, and I have a couple of things I want to say about that. Here's what the Anglican catechism says. It says, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Read that again. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means. What I want to say to you is that the sign is not the mean. The sign is a means to the grace. Are you with me? The signs are a means. The outward and visible signs are a means to a reality that God wants to do. An invisible and spiritual grace. But the sign is a means to the grace. They're not the grace. The outward and visible signs of a inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the signs or the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do in fact receive it. Our problem, your problem and my problem, our problem as humans, as Christians, that we put all our emphasis on the sign and not on the reality. We argue about the waters of baptism. We argue whether it should be in a pool. We argue whether it should be in the River Jordan. We argue whether it's a ton of water. We argue whether a sprinkling is okay. We argue about all sorts of things about the water when the water is simply the sign and the means of a grace. But we are accustomed to arguing whether it should be wine or whether it should be juice. They are simply signs. They are not the grace. They're signs that serve as means to a greater reality. What God is doing in us is the reality. The invisible and spiritual is what we're after. We get stuck on the signs. Whether it's a big round host, whether it's a small host, whether it's leaven, whether it's unleavened, whether it's this, we get stuck in the signs instead of seeking what the reality of the sacramental life is. Our emphasis tends to be on the sign rather than in the reality of what it conveys and demands. The signs in you and in me sometimes overshadow the reality. I mean, how many people get baptized and all they remember is the water? They don't remember the promise that comes with that water. They don't remember the, the reality of what God has done, and you are no longer yourself. You are now a child of the living God. You've been adopted by God, and you shall therefore live as a child of God. And that makes you pretty special. 
but we get stuck on the sign. All the emphasis is on the sign, on the water, on the bread. We argue, the church has argued transubstantiation and just a memorial and this and that. What we need to be after is the reality that God meets us in communion, that God meets us and feeds us with bread, with a nourishment that is spiritual and graceful and loving, and he wants to commune with us and be one with us. But we get stuck on the sign. The signs sometimes overshadow the reality of what God is doing. I want to talk a little bit about baptism. Let me tell you the realities of baptism. First of all, the first reality of baptism is the forgiveness of sins in the sense not that the baptism has the power to forgive sins, but Jesus has the power to forgive sins. But baptism is the sign that you are cleansed from sin, that you've been washed, that you've been made pure, that you've been made clean by the blood of Jesus, but you show it in being obedient to the waters of baptism. Water is a sign of cleansiness, of purifying. So one of the first things that happens when we are baptized, we need to repent of who we were, repent of the way we lived, repent of the gods we worship, repent of the sins we have committed. We need to repent, be baptized, and recognize from that point on that although we do continue to sin, because unfortunately in the flesh we will, we do not make sin our friend. We have been washed. We have been purified. We have been refined for the glory of God. And one of the first reality of baptism is the washing away of sins, the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. That's the first reality. Therefore, do not come out of the waters of baptism to go back to the old life and the old sin. When you come to baptism, you come repentant, changing your direction of life, changing your intention of life to glorify God. You're a different person as you come out of the waters of baptism. Let me tell you another thing that is the reality of baptism, reality of baptism, there is a sense in which when we are baptized, we declare our allegiance. You know, we make certain vows, or godparents and parents make vows for us. But there is a real sense that when we come to the waters of baptism, whatever our allegiances were before, they change. One of the things that you are asked, do you give your life to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life? And you respond, yes. Any allegiance we have had to the world, to other gods, to other religions, to, to the way we behaved before, those things are washed away and taken away. When we are baptized, we declare allegiance only to one God, Jehovah God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
We declare our allegiance in the waters of baptism, and we don't change that allegiance ever again, for we know whose we are. Allegiance is one of the things that, that happens in the water of baptism. And another of the realities of the water of baptism that the water signifies is death and resurrection. I really want you to understand that. When you're baptized, you die. You die. You're not just going through the motions. Real baptism is immersion, is waters washing away your sins, is, is the declaration of your allegiance to the Lord. But there is a real sense in which when we are baptized, we die. That's the whole idea of being submerged in water sometimes. Because you're buried. And what comes out needs to be a new person. In baptism, we die. I'm not sure that we've understood it completely. You have died in the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus. You have died to who you were before. You have died consciously, reasonably, intentionally. You have accepted that you're about to be born again into a new life, a life in Christ and to the glory of God. Sometimes we are baptized or we baptize our children as mere tradition without fully understanding what it is we're doing. I've often said we don't want wet Christians. There's too many wet Christians. We want baptized Christians who knows whose they are and who knows that they've died to self and that they've died to the world, and that they've died to all their previous life. They've died, and they have risen to something new that God has done in your life. You are risen to the life of Christ and to the service of Christ. That's the reality. The sign is the water. The sign is the words we speak. The signs are the actions we take. But the reality is that sins are, are, are erased, are washed away, that our allegiance has changed and we declare it, and that we have died to the self and died to the old so that we can rise to the new and rise to Christ and rise to be Christ. Baptism also fills us with hope because we're adopted. And if you're adopted, God's going to take care of you. If you're his child, his son or his daughter, man, what hope in the promises of Jesus Christ. All of the promises of God. And there's an assurance of belonging we belong from that moment on that we declare our faith, that we submit to baptism in obedience and in faith in Jesus Christ. We enter into a new way of life. St. Paul puts it this way. By the way, some of you if there's anyone among us that has not been baptized, I, I want to encourage you to be baptized, but baptized properly. 
baptizing faith and obedience. If there's anyone among us who has not yet been baptized, it is an issue that Jesus commanded, and as he was baptized, we are all to be baptized. It is part of the Christian call of God, and it is an ordained, commanded word of Jesus. Baptism is essential. It is imperative. But if you have already been baptized, but you're not living up to the reality of what your baptism is all about, I think I'm calling all of you to renew what being baptized is all about. To renew the forgiveness of sins in you. To renew your allegiance to one God and one God alone. To renew the fact that you have died with Christ and that you have risen with Christ and you are no longer your own. I want to call all Christians to not just be wet, but to be baptized. Renew what it means. The reality of your baptism It's not the sign is what the sign represents. This is how Paul, this is how Paul says it in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. I died on the cross with him. As he died for me, I died with him. I have been crucified with Christ. And the life I now live after the cross is the life of Christ in me. That is a sacrament, a sacred act of baptism. And what I'm calling you all to do is to renew it, to live it, to receive it, to embrace it. That God has so loved you that he gave his son. And his son did everything in your place and beyond your place. He did what you could not do. He did it at baptism, and he did it at the cross. Amen? Amen. Do not confuse the sign with the reality. Do not confuse the sign with the reality. The reality is the invisible and spiritual. The sign is the visible the sign that the, what you can touch and hear and see and amen hear the word of the lord and you determine if it is the word of the lord in me or not